0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So today I do want to start off in Matthew 21 with the the Palm Sunday story. I'll be honest with you, when when I first realized that the Sunday that I would get to share was Palm Sunday, I was a little bit bummed. (laughs) Um, As a pastor's son, um, I grew up going to holiday services my entire childhood, and as a pastor's kid, they were just never the highlight of my year. Um, there was always a lot of extra work. There was a Sunday night service, Christmas Eve service, and there's Palm Sunday and all the things that you have. I remember one time when I was a child, um, for some reason there was a clown involved in a Palm Sunday service, and I don't, I don't remember why that was. Um, I, I, I feel like being in the church and being raised as a pastor's son for as long as I have, I feel like I've seen and heard and experienced a lot of different sermons, and, Palm Sunday is one of those ones that, uh, it's it's not one of the major sermons of the year. Easter and Christmas, you know, that's when all the non-churchgoers come to church, and so those are the big sermons, and Palm Sunday is kind of the, the preview of that, and so if you get the Palm Sunday... So, so when I first heard this, I was thinking, first off, I was really looking forward to doing Romans, and so I, I, when Tim asked me to specifically do Palm Sunday, I was a little bummed I wasn't going to get to do Romans, but then... As I started to really look into this, I realized more and more just how much it was the sin in my life that was determining my perspective on what Palm Sunday was. Now I knew the right answers. I knew that that Jesus made his triumphal entry on this day. I knew that there was something about majesty and glory and that God is a big God and kind of the same thing that I learned all through Sunday school and through youth group and later on, even when I was in college, the... Nobody really ever took me aside and really showed me the value, the, the immense importance that was Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday isn't just the lead up to Easter Sunday. Palm Sunday is, is really, in a lot of ways, one of the pinnacles of Jesus fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. And I, and I had never realized that until somebody, Tim, said, I think this would be fantastic for you. Why don't you try and do Palm Sunday? So I started searching into this, and I want to go ahead and take you through some of my journey and what I've, what I've learned through this, and really the way that this has been convicting my life. Um, I've probably... Uh, annoyed my wife on a lot of different occasions this week feeling convicted coming home wanting to have these deep conversations and kind of dragging her into them as God's really working through this in my life so I'm excited to finally share this with you she's been great and has always been happy to point out that yeah yeah that is a problem in your life and yeah yeah I'm glad that you finally learned it so this has been fantastic for me and I want to start with you by reading starting in Matthew chapter 21 starting with verse 1 and as we're reading through this I want you to look for a theme. And that theme is, what are, what's the mark? What's the earmark? What's the, the fingerprint of Jesus in this experience? What, what are, what's the constant pattern that keeps coming out? And I'm going to try and point that out as we read through it. So starting off in chapter 21, verse 1, Jesus' triumphant entry. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage, On the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, The Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Praise God! in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, It is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. As I was reading through this the first time, one of the first things that, that really stuck out to me was the way that constantly through this passage it's written to put humility... Right next to majesty. In everything that Jesus does in this passage, he's constantly juxtaposing the two humility and authority. He's putting the most authoritative figure on earth on a donkey, not just a donkey, the cult of a donkey. He's having his disciples go in and speak his authoritative word to people and say, This donkey is for the Lord and the people don't even ask they just say okay he's speaking the authoritative word a weak man is speaking the authoritative word of god as he starts to come into the city of jerusalem one of the most prestigious one of the biggest metropolises of those days he rides in on a donkey and the people of the city are proclaiming scripture as he's walking in or as he's coming in on a donkey The humility of coming in on something like a donkey, not not a steed, not a stallion, not a a chariot, not being carried, coming in on the colt of a donkey. This thing was probably only, I don't know, this tall? I mean, just barely tall enough to keep your feet off the ground. And while he's put himself in this place of humility, the crowd is proclaiming Psalms 118 and saying that they are proclaiming this And acknowledging that Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. Now, the other people in the city, there there wasn't everybody proclaiming. It says in here that there was there was also the people of Jerusalem that were asking the question, "Who is this man?" Well, the crowds were also screaming at them, "This is the Son of God. This is Him." Jesus is letting other people do the talking for him. He's not coming into this as an authoritative God and saying that I will tell you who I am. He's saying, I'm just going to walk in in a humble way and you're going to tell me who I am. That's a position of authority. After this happens, Jesus enters the temple and began to drive out all the people. Buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. Authority. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. Compassion. He healed them. Authority. Authority. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. The children, the most humble manifestation of God's people, proclaiming him, his authority. But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? I love this answer. Yes. Yes, I do. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. Now, as I read through that, I said, wow, there's a lot of good stuff in there. But something just kept on gnawing on me and gnawing on me and gnawing on me and saying, you're missing something. You're missing something. That's all good and powerful. And that's, that's majestic. And that's the triumphal entry. But you're missing something. So I read it again. I went through it and thought, wow, that is amazing. That is triumphant. That is, that is humility and authority together as one coming to influence a people. But I read it again and it's still not quite. I'm missing something. Then I did that wonderful thing that, that I've done on many, many different occasions and sometimes I actually follow it, sometimes I don't. And I look over to the little left column of my Bible and I see in verse 17 and six, or sorry, 16, where Jesus quotes scripture. And I thought, man, that's, that's, a, that's a, it's a fitting scripture, but what does it mean? What's the purpose of it? So now I want to take you back to Psalms 8, where that comes from. Psalms 8, another psalm that I've probably read a dozen times in my life, and thought, wow, that's, psalms 8 it's psalms jesus quotes psalms pretty frequently he lives in the psalms that's probably one of the reasons we should look into why he quoted psalms he quoted psalms my god my god why have you forsaken me you know you you don't quote something like that when you're about when you're about to die in the most extreme agony of your life unless you're breathing psalms unless you're you you have become that scripture You, you you get you become who you really are when you're on your deathbed and Jesus showed us who he really was on his deathbed by quoting psalms. And so psalms was an important piece of scripture for him. He lived in the psalms. The psalmist and Jesus had a very close relationship. They, they understood the same things. Now, obviously, Jesus was God, and so he had a more extreme understanding than even what the psalmist knew. But Jesus very frequently quotes psalms. So psalms 8, starting with verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. Translated as essentially, you know, O Jehovah, our master. Okay? Jehovah, the name, the the undefinable name of Jesus, of God, of the triune God. God can't tell you how many times I've looked for the easy out and tried to, like, Google what Jehovah means. But it, it doesn't, it's not definable. It's the name. It, it has a meaning, but it's not definable. Our master. Our giver of life. Our giver of value. In those days when, when, when you called somebody your Lord, you were in a position of submission to them you had a relationship to them that in some way gave you value. If you were a servant to them and you were a servant from a good home, from a good house, and you had a a good master, you were a valuable servant. Our master. How majestic is your name that fills the earth. I cannot tell you how much time I spent just trying to understand this idea of filling the earth. And then it it even goes further than that. Your glory is higher than the heavens. Your glory fills the heavens. It is greater than the heavens. Your glory created the heavens. It is big, majestic, powerful. But then it goes into verse 2. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. Instantly goes into this, this theme of humility again, taking the humblest, the child, and silencing his enemies with the child. Now Jesus is, or sorry, the, the psalmist here is really talking about the youngest of the young, so the infants and the babies. He, he's literally saying here that you're taking the words of those who might barely not even be able to speak... Their greatest weakness. And you're silencing your enemies with the greatest weakness of the weakest among us. That's how big he is. This is not a little deal. This is a big deal. When I look into the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals? That you should think about them. Human beings, that you should care for them. Once again, authority and majesty. The heavens created it with your finger. But then you care about humans. Because you're humble. You're authoritative. But you're humble. Yet you made them only a little lower than God. And crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims in the ocean currents. God is so powerful that he doesn't even need dominion over his own things. He puts that in our charge. He created it, and then he gave it to us. He gave us authority over his creation. He told us to take care of it. That's how big God is. When I look into my life and I look at leaders that I admire, I look at leaders that give authority to work through other people. Those are leaders. Anybody can do a job themselves, right? Anybody can just say, well, I really want it done right, so I'm just going to do it myself. I really want this earth run properly, so I'm gonna do it myself. I'm gonna take control out of those that that are broken, and I'm just gonna do it myself. Does that make that person a good leader? No. Makes him a good administrator or dictator or whatever. It doesn't make him a good leader. A good leader is somebody, somebody that we should follow is somebody that gives us the passion and the desire to do as they have commanded. To take over authority from them and to live on through that. To demonstrate that authority. To act in authority that has been delegated to us by a leader, by a master. By our God, our Jehovah, our Lord, our Creator. God is saying in this passage that I don't need you, but I choose to have you. That's how big I am. Then he follows it up in verse 9 with, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Repeated twice. O Jehovah, our Master, you fill the earth. Your name fills the earth. So as I read through this, and honestly it was quite... Set aside by this and thought, wow, this is big scripture. This is this is big stuff. I continued to meditate it even more and more and more, and then I thought. Wait. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength. And you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Why are they different? Jesus was quoting scripture. Did he misquote it? Well, in my experience, Jesus probably doesn't really misquote anything. He does it for a purpose. So I really started looking into this, and I found something that just boggled my mind. When Jesus quoted that scripture... He could have spoke it in Hebrew. He could have spoken it in the original, right? Jesus could speak Hebrew. And people there probably would have known Hebrew. The teachers he was talking to would have certainly known Hebrew. So if Jesus wanted to quote it back perfectly, why didn't he just do it in the original Hebrew? Why did, he, why did it get rendered into Scripture in the Greek? Why did that happen? So then I started studying this, and, and he, they use different words. It's not, even, it's not even that it was just a mistranslation or that it was rendered differently. He actually uses different words here. In the Hebrew, in Psalms 8, it it literally means to put in place or to set, to to found praise. To put in place. I've established praise. He's saying that in Psalms. He comes to Matthew and it changes. And it really reads here, you have perfected praise. You have completed praise. Praise. Well, then you look at that word praise and you think, well, wait a second. That's actually just a derivative meaning of the word. What's, what's some, that, that word actually more closely means story. It's not praise. It's story. It literally means, in the Greek, you have completed your story. You have completed your praise. Jesus takes scripture and quotes it differently because right then the teachers are looking at him and saying, why are you letting the children say this? Are you crazy? They're calling you the son of God. You heretic. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. They're completing it for me right here. It's not just that, that I'm quoting scripture. What I started then, I'm finishing now. That's what he's saying how many times have I passed that over? How many times have I read this scripture and just didn't even bother to look? Jesus is making a point here. You know what else is, is crazy? The jaw dropping on top of that is Jesus is making another point. He's saying what they're doing there and praising their Jehovah, their master, they're doing now. I'm him He's quoting scripture and essentially saying, That scripture applies to me. You teachers, you fools, you ignorant people, they are talking about me here in this place fulfilling scripture in this very moment. And it says that he will silence his foes with the weakest of the weakest of us. And you know what happens there? It ends. Chapter ends. He went on. What does it say here? Um, he returned to Bethany where they stayed overnight. There was no more dialogue after this. What he's done there is he just used one scripture to say, I am God and I am here. I am fulfilling scripture and those children are helping me with that. And I am silencing you. I am silencing my foe here and now in this place, in this moment. You be quiet. That scripture is powerful. This is a majestic God. This is a God that can silence his foes with the weaknesses of his weakest beings. And he did it right there in scripture. And he used scripture to do it. But he made a point that I am here and now this triumphant entry, this is me fulfilling scripture. This is me making a point. This is me showing you that the God of the universe is here now in this place and I'm fulfilling scripture. That's a big God. Now I read through that and as I read through that I thought, wow, I can't really say I've ever studied it from that perspective. That... That just makes it incomprehensible. And I started thinking if we really believed this, if we really heard the Palm Sunday sermon too many times, we would see it in our lives. If if I really believed this scripture, that God was right there alongside me, silencing my foes, with me, in this place, fulfilling scripture, a living God in my heart, doing a work, I would live differently. After I studied through this and studied through this and kind of lamented it, um, then got excited about it again, then lamented it again, then got excited about it again and thought, this is this is heavy stuff." Satan really started to get involved and started saying, "You know, you're too young to deliver this message. you're not experienced enough, you're not really a pastor. you're not really in a place of authority." And I started to really suffer from that. And I realized this was part two. That we suffer under fear because we don't believe. We suffer the fears of this world because we don't believe that God is majestic. We don't believe that he really could silence our foes with the weaknesses of his weakest. We don't believe, so therefore we get fearful. And there in that moment, I was sitting in my office and I just thought, wow, here in this time, God is making this a powerful message in my life. And so I started to think, you know, how do I apply this? How do I get to a point where I can truly proclaim this part of the gospel, the gospel of God's majesty? the fact that he was majestic and the creator of the universe and he brought himself down to the earth and humbled himself before us so that he could die on the cross and save us from our sins how do I apply that to my life how do I not overlook another Palm Sunday so I started searching through my life and I realized that I live in perpetual unnecessary fear and I think that many of us do fears within our ministry. What if God moves me to Africa? What if my plans change? What if I have to go serve in a place where there's no running water? What if I plant a church and it fails? What if I lead these people and then they preach heresy from the pulpit? What if I start this home group And then somebody does a horrible thing and ruins it all. What if, what if, what if, what if I fear? Do you believe that God is majestic? Do you believe that He is making a point in your life now and yesterday and tomorrow to be a God that is going to change who you are and how you act? Then don't live in that fear. What if God doesn't come through? What if there's not enough funding? What if we don't finish the project? What if? What if? Well, I probably just shouldn't try. This is too big for me. I'm too young to be in ministry. I'm not in the right context to do ministry. I'm just a teacher. Fear. Fear. What about in our families? The fear of messing up our children. I, I, I struggle with that one. <laughs> uh, I, I grew up in a, in a fairly structured home. My parents were very, very loving, but a very structured home. I'm, I'm one of seven kids. Um, we grew up in very rural parts of the United States. I was born in Pence, Kansas, population 16, Spent most of my early childhood in Nisland, South Dakota, population two hundred and six. Finally, got upgraded to the big city of Denver when I was in high school, so that was great. But I, but my my roots are really very rural. And my parents had a big family, and they really believed in a strong work work ethic. I got a job when I was nine years old. I was driving combines before I was ten, eleven years old. I was driving four wheelers. I was herding cattle. I was I was. I was living a life of somebody much older than me because that responsibility had been given to me at a young age and said, This is how we do it in this community. And so I want to impart some of that onto my son, but where's the line of strong work ethic and controlling? And and if I don't act in his life because I fear that, then I'm just not acting in his life. The fear is not rational. We fear messing up our children. We fear being too harsh on them. We fear holding them to a high standard. We fear honesty with our children. Well, I can't tell them what I did. (laughs) We don't want to give them any more ideas than they already have. If I'm honest with them, they'll know that I'm sinful. If I tell them how I lived my life, they'll just think it's okay and they'll go mess up their lives. So, I don't have a transparent relationship with my son or my child or my daughter. As far as they're concerned, I'm perfect. So, the first time they mess up, they catch the message, You don't mess up in this community. I'm not messed up. You don't mess up. When really our kids should be hearing, Mom and Dad messed up. But we don't tell them that because we're fearful. Here's even worse. Fear of our children messing themselves up. Going off to college. Okay, my son is still 15, 16 years from really being in that... 15, 14, wow. Okay, 15 years from being in that place of going off to college. But how many of you have recently sent a child off to be by themselves in a different country and just fear every day that they're at parties And with girls or boys, and they're not being proper, and these fears because I'm not controlling them. They're going to mess up their lives. I messed up my life. I hope that someday my son won't make the same mistake I made, but I certainly hope that he doesn't think that I'm perfect. Because then it will never give him license to be okay with being imperfect. I'm fearful that my son will mess himself up. What about once we send our child off to this world, and this world has its way with them? Will they survive? Will they come out on top? For the most part, I've always had a a, a personality that's kept me fairly straight and narrow I was kind of one of those kids I was the pretty good pastor's kid I was not really all that rebellious when I was a child I had older siblings that did plenty of that for me Um, they would admit it (laughs) Um, that took very detoured routes to getting where God wanted them but for the most part they're there they did not mess themselves up God still loves them they made mistakes. When I was in college, and I started making all the mistakes that I was going to make, I did not mess myself up. God still loves me. And I still got to a point where I am in a relationship with Christ. Do we believe that God is big and majestic and powerful and con- and has control over things? Do we believe to the extent that it changes the way we act? what about in our family in our in our relationships with our spouses what if my needs aren't met what if my spouse doesn't love me in the right way what if what if i was happy i was hoping to have this kind of relationship with my spouse and it turns out to be this what if what if what if i'm single and i'm i'm 25 i'm 30, i'm 35 i'm 38 i'm 40 years old and i'm single What if I never get married? If I don't get out there and start dating, if I don't take things into my own hands, I may never get to have children. Does that determine the way you live your life? Does that fear determine how you act? What about just inside me? Let's let's focus in a little bit. Okay, we dealt with ministry, we deal with our families. What about just... The fear of being transparent in front of people. What if they don't like me? If I truly believed in the majesty of God, I wouldn't care what people think of me. I would never even consider it. I'm not a gifted speaker. Neither was Moses. God used him pretty good. Maybe I'm not an evangelist. I get nervous around people. I can't talk to a stranger. I suffer under that one all the time. I don't know how many of you are there, but I suffer when I talk to strangers. I, I don't know what it is. In some parts of my life, I can be fairly extroverted, but strangers scare me. And I'm fearful of them. What if? What if they judge me? What if their first impression of me is a bad one? I'll never recover. I fear people. What if my friends and my family, what if the world, what if my peers, what if my boss sees my sin inside of me? I can't be transparent. I can't confess my sins. We wonder today where confession has gone in the modern church. I'll tell you where it's gone, into fear. We don't encourage people to confess their sins because we don't want to confess our sins. And then we go and we share the gospel with somebody, and we say that you need to confess your sins so that Jesus can come into your life and love you. And they look at you and go, You're a horrible person. And you've never shared with me. The reason we don't confess anymore in the modern church is because we as pastors, we as leaders, we as elders don't like to do it ourselves. And so we, we let everybody else off. Because if we didn't, we'd have to do it ourselves. We're not transparent. What about just an overwhelming feel of failure in myself? I'm not valuable. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve happiness. I've been a horrible person, and so why would God love me? I don't deserve a good spouse. I don't deserve a successful ministry. Many people don't walk around saying those things, but that's how we live our lives. You're right in that we don't deserve anything. We have been freely given those things, and it's our job to accept them. If you feel failure, fear failure, because you don't think you're valuable, welcome to the club And recognize that God values you and that's all that matters. Because He's majestic. Because He fills the earth. Because He completes Scripture. Because He has the gospel that He is fulfilling in our lives. What if we miss out on happiness? I fear missing out on happiness. In my experience, that's, that's what I understand a, a midlife crisis to be. Is that, is that Am I right for the counselors in the room? You've gotten to a point in your life and you think, oh no, there's all these things I haven't done yet. I have to cram them all in now. I have to make all these horrible decisions about things I can't afford and do things that aren't good for my family because what if I miss out on happiness? I fear missing out. God's going to hold back. He's not going to give me his full grace because I'm too old. Maybe I made too many mistakes so I didn't become a Christian until I was 35 or 40 years old. And so, and so now I'm just not going to get to enjoy deep and intimate Christian relationship over a long period of time because God's going to hold back on me as punishment. That's not the God I know. The God I know restores people. He doesn't put people into suffering. One of the last ones that I think is kind of an interesting paradox to this is that we can fear all of those things. We can fear this world. We can fear our, fear our families. We can fear everything in light of God's majesty, knowing we have knowledge. We have written scripture. We read it. We say it. We say God is sovereign. Some of us went to churches that were sovereign grace church. We know that God is sovereign. And we fear all those things. But you know what? The only thing we truly don't fear is God. We live our lives as though we don't fear God. We fear all these worldly things. But when it comes to God's judgment, when it comes to what he's given us for our lives, when it comes to the way he's asked us to live our lives, we don't fear that. Well, God's not really going to punish me for that. We're happy to fear all these things of this world. But when it comes down to the one thing that we truly should fear, the God of the universe, that we should have an understanding and a gracious fear of, knowing that He could really do anything with our lives that He desires, we don't fear that. The great paradox of where we live in fear is that we fear everything we shouldn't and we don't fear the one thing we should. So when God had put Jesus on the earth, and Jesus was riding into the great city of Jerusalem to see his name proclaimed. He was saying, this is me. Forget all those things. I'm majestic. Fear me. Don't fear the world. Don't fear other people hurting you. Don't, don't fear people hurting you or your family because of the gospel, because of what you've believed. Fear me. And that's all you need to fear, and I'll deal with it. And I don't mean the type of fear that's, that's paralyzing. I don't mean the type of fear. that It's the healthy sort of fear. Like, I kind of feared my dad growing up. He wasn't abusive, but there was a healthy understanding that if I did something wrong, that he would make it right in my life. There was a, a healthy fear there. There is a good and healthy and godly way to fear God. We apply it in all the wrong ways, and we don't apply it in the one good way we should. So this this triumphant entry was meant to be a point, And Jesus is making a point. He's quoting scripture. He's misquoting scripture specifically to make a point. To tell us that this is happening now, in this life, right now, on this planet, in this spot, with these people. They are proclaiming the name of God. And I am he, and I am going to silence you, and I'm going to silence your fears. That's what he's saying. The triumphant entry is one of the pinnacles of the gospel. It is the majesty that gives us the value so we understand why it was such a big deal that Jesus was ever here. Because we understand the majesty of God, which is why it was such a big deal that he was here. Which is why it was such a big deal that he gave up his life for us. Through this scripture, uh, I feel convicted. I feel like God has pointed out to me a key issue in my life, in the lives of others, in the lives of the church, as to why Sunday morning, in so many cases, is just a social club. Because it's a place for us to talk about all of our worldly fears and to forget that we fear God. And that church is not going to survive that church is going to struggle and people are going to get tired that it isn't transparent people are going to get tired that it isn't truthful and we as humans are going to look for that truth someplace else god has given us this church this body this community a fellowship so that we can come here and fear the right things and not fear the wrong things that's why we're here that's why sunday mornings are important That's why the triumphal entry is important, because God is making a point. Look into your life. Are you paralyzed by fear? Are you fearful for your new grandkids, for your travel, for your health issues? Are you fearful for not ever getting married? Am I fearful for being too young and standing here in front of all these people and thinking, what could God possibly do with me? Are you fearful because you don't have a true missionary job? Are you fearful because somebody has been critical of you and you've let them determine your value? What are you fearful for? And give it up, knowing that God is majestic, that he's all-powerful, and that he is our Savior. God is here now in your life. At this moment, after all that happened, we've got the Holy Spirit today in this place. It's telling us that we have nothing to fear. So as I was going through and kind of tying this up, I started to think, wow, this is really powerful scripture. So then I went and I started looking for other themes in the Bible and I found out, I think that this sermon could probably be preached out of any scripture in, in the Bible. Any of it. Pick a verse. Find the juxtaposition of humility and authority and find out what the message is. And the message is usually, stop fearing. Just do. Be obedient. Let me save you. That's all throughout the New Testament. That's all throughout the Old Testament. This is not a Palm Sunday sermon. This is an everyday sermon. This is something that should take hold of our lives in any scripture that we read. In Matthew, we're given great release from this fear. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Why? Because I am humble and I am gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden that I give you is light. Jesus is taking our burden and giving you his and saying, it's light. Don't live under this. All that wonderful stuff about arguing about church politics and music and who said what and how we should do communion and offering and all of that wonderful stuff does not matter because what matters is that you should come to me and that I will give you rest for your soul. And if you are doing that and you are doing that in community, that is what the church is to be. So I encourage you, I challenge you, today as a church, as a body, as a congregation, as a fellowship of a body of believers, as a gathering, whatever you want to call it from whatever background you come from, to be that as a community. That's what I want. As one of the leaders of this church, that's what I want for this church. That's what I want for you when I look out. That's what I know Tim wants in the depths of his heart that we would be a body of believers that are coming and finding rest for our souls because we know God is majestic and he is powerful and he can do anything in our lives and we have no reason to fear because God is a big God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do pray that just this message would be one of Of power and authority in our lives. Lord, that we would look at this majestic day of Palm Sunday, this this day of the triumphant entry, Lord, and we would know that in this you proclaimed your majesty and your power and that we have nothing to fear in our lives. Lord, I pray that this is something that this body would take into the world. Lord, that we would share this with the people in our lives. Lord, that this would be the greatest tool of our ministry because you have empowered it in us. Lord, I I give to you the lives of these people, these families. Lord, I pray your blessings upon them. I pray your encouragement upon them as they try to live in obedience, as I try and live in obedience. You are a big God and we recognize you. We thank you and we pray all of these things in the majestic and powerful name of your Son.